Exploring the intersection of medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome back to the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Over the last month, as I've started this podcast, I've received so many messages from you. The messages have come from people all over the world, and I'm incredibly appreciative of the support that you've shown me in this endeavor. I received one message this week that not only moved me, but serves as a perfect introduction to this week's episode. This message is from Bethany, who's a first-year medical student, and she gave me permission to share it with you. She writes, When I was an ER tech for the past few years, I could always tell when the patients were frustrated or confused with their care. However, the number one thing I would always say to them was that doctors are people too, just like me and you. And when I said that, it almost always helped the patients level with the doctors. I hope this led to a better experience for them. When I saw the name of your show, I was so happy. It just resonated with me so deeply. Thank you so much for the message, Bethany. I think it represents just one of the reasons why I started this podcast. It's been great being able to highlight such interesting and successful doctors thus far in only our first few weeks, and today is no exception. In medicine and in science, the concept of mentorship is so important. Whether it's becoming a physician or becoming a scientist, there are multiple levels of training, and at each point in that training, we often seek out those who have been there before us. The knowledge we can gain from those who have already been through it can sometimes be as valuable as the knowledge we gain in the classrooms or in clinicals. And it holds true also that many of us go into medicine or science because we enjoy teaching. In residency, I enjoyed having students on rounds as it gave me a chance to share my knowledge and hopefully in a small way to help to inspire the next generation. My guest today exemplifies the importance of both seeking mentorship and then becoming a great mentor. And she also is a testament to how taking advantage of a small opportunity, even one at 14 years old, can eventually lead you to running your own lab and being named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Dr. Natasha Shabani is an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Virginia. You'll hear a bit about her path in our discussion, but let me give you the broad strokes. She started college at 16, had earned her PhD by 24, and in 2021, she received the National Institute of Health Director's Early Independence Award. You see, usually after getting your PhD, you go through a postdoctoral training period that typically lasts three to five years. The Early Independence Award allows junior scientists to bypass this postdoc period and immediately start their own lab. I think you could already tell how accomplished our guest today is. Her research centers around the use of ultrasound to help treat cancer, and in our discussion, you'll hear her explain how she is truly on the cutting edge of cancer treatment. We also talk a lot about the mentors we had starting our careers. I think you will find Dr. Shebani to be passionate about her work and inspiring in her dedication to push us forward towards a cure for cancer. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Natasha Shebani, welcome to the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We like to start all of our interviews with this question. What is your typical morning routine? So my typical morning routine can honestly vary from day to day, but usually it starts quite simply. I start in the morning by just, you know, waking up and for better or worse, checking my calendar. I really live and breathe by my Google calendar, as you can imagine. And uh, I love to start most days with a nice hot, warm bowl of oatmeal. So my morning ritual that for some reason just helps me get centered is 
preparing my oatmeal and, you know, um, flavoring it with all the various ingredients that I like. And for some reason, that just gives me a little bit of that pep in my step to get my day started. Uh, from there, really, you know, my I love science. And so I think my days are typically centered around, again, just making it into the lab and starting that routine, whether it be of meeting with students and mentoring them or mapping out what types of experiments the lab is going to be dealing with for the day. And then aside from that, being an academician also has all kinds of administrative tasks that are associated with it as well. So I, I basically skip right from the morning wake up over to work. I wish I could say that I had some sort of really meditative ritual that I engage in, but honestly, that's part of uh, my personal goals perhaps for the new year is to incorporate some of those things as well. I like it. And as we get into all of your accomplishments, I think you need all of that time to, to do the work that you're doing. Unfortunately, there are only 24 hours in a day, which is one of the challenges that I confront on the daily. Now, Natasha, I want to start with your early career and your very early career, 14 years old. You were working in a university lab. Tell us a little bit about how you got interested in science and how you found your way to that lab. Absolutely. So, you know, again, my, my love of science, I was very lucky, I think, to have teachers and parents and mentors who fostered that early. So a lot of my early childhood days were spent in the summers at science camp or space camp that evolved into volunteering at the local science museum on weekends. And in the classroom, it was actually at a pretty early stage, all the way back to seventh grade. I can remember that my teachers encouraged me to uh, pursue my love of science by opening up the doors of their classroom to me after school to do my first science project. And then that evolved into kind of an addiction to science fairs that uh, eventually necessitated that I move outside of my school classrooms and into a real lab. So by the time I was 14, I just really knew that I wanted to do research in a real laboratory setting. And believe it or not, I actually picked up the phone. I started scrolling through the directories of the Department of Anatomy and Neurobiology at Virginia Commonwealth University, which was an institution about half an hour away from where I lived. And I started making phone calls to the labs. And I was very lucky that one uh, particular graduate student in a lab picked up the phone and, um, you know, between her and her advisor, who later became my very first research advisor, uh, they were willing to take me on as a high school research assistant. So I started off in the lab with great enthusiasm as a glassware washer, <laughs> as a dishwasher. <laughs> I was like washing beakers and making PBS and doing basic things. And I remember being so happy about it at the time. But then that eventually advanced into having my own um, project and even ending up as a you know technical technical acknowledgement um, on a paper. We all have to start so, somewhere. We all start somewhere, but it's a story that you know as I recollected really over recent months, I came to realize that that really is where things started. Um, so you know I feel very fortunate that somebody took a leap of faith on me at that early age, and I try to do the same thing for others now and sort of paying it forward to students who have that enthusiasm and drive. Um, but certainly the, the journey from there really entailed then going into a biomedical engineering lab shortly after the neurobiology lab, and then really staying within that realm of biomedical engineering all the way through not only my PhD, but now 
through, you know, my, my faculty position as well. Sure. And is it true that your parents would shuffle you back and forth to the lab at 14? I, I imagine you didn't have your license at that time. Yeah, very perceptive question. So the answer is yes. Um, I uh, started working in the lab before I even had my permit. So again, the, the, the power of supportive parents, again, I wouldn't be where I am without them, but particularly when it came to those early experiences, I'm grateful that they indeed, after school, would pick me up, take me over to VCU to work in the lab for a few hours, and then, uh, you know, take me home. That's a great acknowledgement. I, I have to say I can relate to that. At 14, I started interning at a political talk radio station in Philadelphia where I grew up. It was down the street from my high school, and several days a week, my dad would drive me in at 5.30 a.m. He'd sit in the car eating a bagel while I went up to the studio, and then at 8, 8.15, I'd come down. He'd drive me to work, and I think it just speaks to the, the appreciation we have in terms of our parents leading us forward in our interests. Absolutely. I just love hearing that story. I think that's amazing and, and, and amazing that you have such great parents. It's funny because the host that I worked with and the producer of the show still talk about more so, you know, not even talking about me, talking about how my dad, Dr. Belfer, the other Dr. Belfer, would sit in the car waiting, listening to the show, waiting for me. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. I love that. So not only was he waiting for you, but he was supporting you as well in that process. He was. And I wonder if we have some other parallels in terms of our experiences leading off, because, you know, when I worked for the show, I was around a very high energy, very high expectation environment where there was a lot of hard work going on. You similarly walking in as a 14 year old into a university lab where there was a lot of great research and a lot of high expectations, I would imagine. What kind of impressions did that leave on you that you maybe still take forward to this day? Yeah, you know, it, it's it was a very similar experience for me. Actually, the lab that I joined, you know, speaking of a leap of faith, it was very interesting that they took me on and, and took me seriously because that lab actually um, not only did not have any high school research assistants before me, but there weren't even any undergraduate research assistants in the lab. So really, like there was this huge gap between me as a high school student and then a lot of high performing graduate students and postdocs and, of course, sort of multiple PIs within the lab as well. So for me, that was a particularly enriching environment, I think, in part because I was really getting to. Uh, interact a whole lot with people that I aspired to become like one day. And, and, you know, certainly the fact that they took me seriously gave me the impression at an early age that it's okay to have, you know, high ambitions and, and to hope that, you know, people will support and foster that when they see that you're serious about what you're doing. Um, also, I think that that early experience uh, really, again, I sort of caught that bug, that excitement that has to do with the gratification of scientific discovery. So when the lab trusted me enough to task me with, you know, my, my first major contribution, we ended up making a particular discovery that I won't get into the details of, but it was by virtue of an, a new analytical pipeline that I was trying to work out that the lab actually uh, was able to determine a very important factor in the research that they were doing. And in short, the excitement that was built around that was in part exciting for me because I really felt like I could call that a contribution of my own. Um, and, you know, aside from that, I think just in terms of communication and development as a young person, 
I've always tended to be younger than than most of the people around me. But um, again, that that sort of age gap and the training gap to me, it, it didn't feel like anything at the time. And I guess I look back on that with a lot of surprise now because I think about what I would think if a 14 year old walked through the doors of my lab. Um, so all in all, I'm grateful to say that these experiences were really enriching and um, and just motivated me to kind of stay the course. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of lessons to be had from that. The the uh, lesson of taking the leap and even cold calling when you want to seek yes. out opportunities. And I think that, you know, people taking a chance on you and, and being able to really maximize those experiences are two great lessons I took from that. I, I agree. And if I may just comment on the last thing you said, um, I think there's a lot to be said for when you're being proactive about your future is met with positive feedback. So when I decided to take matters into my own hands as a 14 year old, maybe there was another version of the scenario in a parallel universe where nobody responded to my calls. And I wonder what kind of message that would have sent to 14 year old Natasha. But the fact that someone did answer the call, I think definitely instilled something in me at an early age that I now really, again, try to foster in other students who maybe don't uh, initially feel that it's okay to, to be proactive about their futures, to do the cold calling, to do the cold emailing. I think that there are a lot of people out there who meet those kinds of actions with great enthusiasm. And I'm certainly one of them now, just again, in the spirit of paying it forward. But um, I think a lot of students out there should know that it's perfectly fine, for instance, if you wanna work in a research lab to just reach out and explain your interests and show your passion and so, yeah, I, I think that idea of being proactive is so key when you talk to, you know, different people who have found joy and success in what they're doing. And that's the beauty of the, the field of science, the field of medicine. I mean, medicine, we were all interns once. We all went through our training. And now when the medical student or the first year resident comes in and is working with me, I remember back to those days. It really puts things into perspective. So that's really nice to hear your, your journey. I want to shift a little bit into talking about your expertise, focused ultrasound. Uh, we'll get into the specifics and the utilities and some of the research that you've been doing. But can you tell us how you ended up in the field of focused ultrasound and what made you interested in it? Absolutely. So I think the very early interest actually harkens back to some of those early days of being, you know, a high schooler or an undergraduate research assistant. Um, in the lab. So once, but definitely by the time I was in college, I had transitioned from that neurobiology lab into a biomedical engineering lab that was focusing on biomaterials and drug delivery. And so I took uh, a great deal of fascination with the topic of drug delivery and definitely thought that that's what I want to do going into grad school. So when I was applying to graduate programs, I actually applied to a lot of drug delivery labs not necessarily knowing that really the labs I was applying to were experts in image-guided drug delivery. And image-guided drug delivery uh, is actually uh, directly intertwined with focused ultrasound in that that technology is an image-guided drug delivery technology, among other things. So my foray into focused ultrasound was actually uh, maybe I thought it was intentional, but it, I really kind of fell into the field when I ended up pursuing my PhD, uh, which was in biomedical engineering at the University of Virginia. 
And the University of Virginia and Charlottesville um, are really, you know, a very interesting and awesome place to be as far as focused ultrasound research goes. Um, the research enterprise here is very strong when it comes to use of the technology, both at the preclinical and clinical levels. And we also have the good fortune of having a foundation, a nonprofit organization that's right here in town that spearheads and really catalyzes a lot of the research and clinical advancements um, within the field. And that's the Focused Ultrasound Foundation. So um, they're really all about saving time and being effective as far as clinical translation and, and advancement of the technology goes. And as a graduate student, I really got to just exist and advance at this nexus of like the nonprofit sector, the private sector and the academic sector um, in, in doing focused ultrasound research. So that, I think the, the fact that that experience was so enriching for me as a graduate student is really what led me to stay in the field and is now what has made me so passionate that I've, I've really committed my career in effect to advancing focused ultrasound technology. And Natasha, in the ER, we use ultrasound all the time. We turn to it more so in a diagnostic sense, looking right. for the appendix when we're thinking about appendicitis, looking for fluid, say around the heart or in the abdomen. Can you tell our audience what focused ultrasound is, sort of an overview of it, and how it's applied more in a therapeutic sense as opposed to diagnostic sense? Absolutely. So, you know, you, you provided a really nice preface in that when a lot of us think about ultrasound technology, we immediately think of its imaging applications. But what a lot of people don't know is that those same sound waves when administered using different acoustic exposure conditions, they can actually begin to exert therapeutic effects within the tissue. So the reason we call it focused ultrasound is because often we are basically applying sound waves in a manner where all of the sound waves are converging into a single ellipsoid focus, right? And so within that focus, we get a certain degree of energy density that accumulates that thereby allows us to exert therapeutic effects within the tissue. And these effects can range anywhere from being thermal to mechanical in nature. And so that's, I would say at a very high level, the principle that underscores focused ultrasound. Another way to think of it is as therapeutic ultrasound. Um, and again, we can, there are really over 30 mechanisms of action that exist nowadays for focused ultrasound with about 100 plus in clinical indications to date. So all of that is to say that the effects of the technology and the ways that we can harness it are extremely versatile. And when I use ultrasound in the ER, I like it because it is quick, it is painless to the patient, and there's no radiation like some of our other imaging modalities are. Are those same qualities of ultrasound that I understand it in terms of the ER application, similar to why ultrasound is so attractive in your setting of expertise? Absolutely. So again, that's an excellent question. And the answer is yes. Um, a couple of the major appeals of focused ultrasound include the fact that it is non-invasive. It is also non-ionizing. And it's now been shown, again, at various levels clinically to be um, safe and repeatable. And fundamentally, it is localizable, meaning that these effects that we're seeking to exert within the tissue, we can do in a highly localized manner. Um, so for all the reasons you mentioned on the imaging front, ultrasound therapy is similarly appealing.
And can you talk a little bit about the work you've done in different diseases using focused ultrasound? I know that you've worked on a number of different things, <laughs> but just give our audience an overview of the types of diseases that focused ultrasound is, is used in and researched in specifically by you and your team. Absolutely. So my team, uh, so I'm really a cancer researcher at my core. So my team is extremely interested in advancing the use of focused ultrasound in the oncology setting. Now, more specifically, we're very interested in leveraging focused ultrasound to potentiate a specific class of cancer therapies known as immunotherapy. And just to give you a little bit of background, immunotherapy is really an unparalleled tool that we now have in our armamentarium when it comes to cancer treatment. The idea behind immunotherapies is that they are these agents that are basically targeting your immune system and lifting those barriers that would allow your immune system to target cancer, say, in the same way that it targets the common cold. So in essence, we want to use immunotherapy to train our immune system to fight off cancer. But of course, cancer is a very sophisticated disease and has all these different mechanisms it can exploit within our bodies to avoid being eradicated by the immune system. Now, when immunotherapies work, again, their effects are remarkable. We've seen curative effects. We've seen long-term responses. And this is really exciting for what immunotherapy holds in terms of its promise going forward. But as I'm talking about these effects, I should qualify that by saying that only about 15 to 40% of patients who receive immunotherapy actually uh, receive these benefits that I'm describing. So our goal with focused ultrasound is to essentially broaden the benefit of immunotherapy to uh, a broader class of patients. And of course, these are typically patients with solid tumors. Um, so again, to summarize, we're very interested in using focused ultrasound to potentiate immunotherapy in the setting of different types of solid tumors. So hopefully that background helps contextualize all those different words a little bit. Now to get into the types of tumors that we're interested in, two of my major foci are uh, metastatic breast cancer as well as brain tumors. So we're very interested in both primary as well as metastatic brain tumors. In grad school, I spent a lot of time thinking about glioblastoma, which is really one of the most common and aggressive brain tumors in adults. And um, on the breast cancer front, we uh, have been doing work again in the primary setting of breast cancer. And now with the uh, start of my lab, we're also thinking about breast cancer in the brain metastasis setting as well. So big picture, those are two major themes that my lab happens to be thinking about, but the reality is that focused ultrasound indications uh, span a wide array of different types of cancers beyond that. And of course, as we grow as a lab, we're very interested in expanding similarly into other cancer, uh, cancer types as well. And Natasha, what are the unique characteristics of brain cancer, brain metastases in particular? I imagine it has to do with the blood-brain barrier yeah. if not other things as well. Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the major constraints on delivery of agents to the CNS in general, meaning, you know, in our case, mainly to the brain, is the existence of what we call the blood-brain barrier. And for those who aren't familiar with what the blood-brain barrier is, we can really think about it almost like this shrink wrap that exists around the brain. So it's a dense network of vasculature that is highly restrictive of transport of different types of molecules into the brain. So things like neurodegenerative diseases or cancer 
uh, can often have low amounts of drug delivery associated with them by virtue of this blood-brain barrier existing. And and keep in mind that, you know, endogenous, like homeostatically speaking, the blood-brain barrier is a protective mechanism, right? It is meant to be there and it's really meant to protect this precious organ, our brain, uh, from any harm. But when we're trying to administer agents like chemotherapies or even immunotherapies, it can pose a major challenge. So where does focused ultrasound plug into this? Well, in the case of brain tumors, we can actually use focused ultrasound as a means to targeted in a targeted manner and selectively disrupt portions of the blood-brain barrier in order to allow the penetrance of those therapeutics into the brain tumor. And keep in mind that when we do this, it is, uh, a, again, a non-invasive approach and the disruption of that blood-brain barrier is also meant to be transient, meaning that we all ultimately have restoration of the barrier. And again, this mechanism is already in the clinic, being explored in a variety of different disease settings. But um, importantly, we are really uh, trying to build off of the momentum that exists around blood-brain barrier opening for brain tumors um, specifically. And life. what I'm learning, Natasha, and I, what I think is fascinating is that Ultrasound is not just attacking the target cells or the cancer cells, for example, but really changing other aspects of the environment of the body so that medications and, and other therapeutics can work even more effective. Am I right with that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I've talked a lot up until now about focused ultrasound through the lens of drug delivery, and, and hopefully I've convinced you that it can be a powerful tool or kind of vehicle for potentiating the delivery of different drugs. But we also can modulate cells with sound waves as well, which is also kind of a fascinating thing to think about. So another focus of my lab is actually thinking about ways that we can use sound waves to modulate different types of immune cells in the setting of cancer so that we can ultimately render tumors more responsive to immunotherapy by infiltrating them with the right types of immune cells. Um, so outside of the immune modulation realm, there are also other modulatory properties that are being explored for uh, ultrasound, and this includes neuromodulation as well, although that's like a step outside of my <laughs> expertise. Sure. And I think, Natasha, if I were to ask you to go through all of the success you've had in, in this field, we'd be here for a long time. So let me ask you, <laughs> from a general sense, where do we stand in terms of bringing the success that you and others have had in research in the lab setting to the patient and delivering it in a clinical setting? Yeah, you know, I would say within the focused ultrasound community, again, by virtue of a very dedicated group of researchers worldwide and also organizations like the Focused Ultrasound Foundation, we are making amazing strides when it comes to clinical translation. Again, you can, like, if you look at the clinical landscape for focused ultrasound, I would say the field is really burgeoning across a wide array of clinical indications. And I suppose just from a personal standpoint, I will point to one example from my own work that was a pretty unique example of how this paradigm can take place. So when I was a graduate student, we were doing work exploring combination of a particular chemotherapy with thermally ablative focused ultrasound in the setting of uh, breast cancer. And we ended up doing a bunch of preclinical work in this space during my time as a graduate student that has now actually been translated into a clinical trial 
here at UVA that has just recently been approved and is now enrolling patients to basically explore that same combination of the chemotherapy and focused ultrasound in early stage breast cancer patients. So it's rather rare to get to witness that translational paradigm as a graduate student. And certainly now I feel fortunate to be able to tap into this next clinical component as a faculty member. But, you know, that's really meant to serve as an example of how uh, translation can happen and, and how it does happen within our field when the right infrastructure and the right collaborators are in place. And um, certainly I have to credit all of our amazing clinical collaborators for, for being champions of uh, the work on that front to see it through to the next level. So I think that that's a good example of where we are seeing that even with these more novel and, and you know, uh, sort of next generation paradigms when it comes to immunotherapy and stuff, like we, we really are seeing that the next phase is beginning to take shape. And it truly is a collaborative effort. I think there's been a lot of progress that has already been made. Even going through the foundation's website, you can see pages upon pages of all of the success uh, of focused ultrasound. And certainly there's a lot more to come. I wanna ask you to look forward uh, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, how widespread do you envision focused ultrasound being, say, in my clinical practice? Will I be walking around the emergency room using focused ultrasound to help my patients in the emergency department? I would certainly hope so. I think that as a researcher and more so as an engineer uh, working on this topic from the preclinical side, it would be a dream come true to see ultrasound technology be that prevalent and, and sort of like pervasive when it comes to clinical implementation. There are a lot of, you know, practical uses for the technology and things like, you know, ablation especially um, have really taken flight and have already reached the point of FDA approval and sometimes even U.S. Uh, reimbursement at the clinical level. So we're seeing that adoption really start to take place. But I personally would love to see a day where you as an ER doctor or others in the clinical world are treating focused ultrasound as, you know, another, um, you know, option within their armamentarium of tools, if not uh, an even better option than perhaps others we have right now. And what do you see looking forward again as the major challenges in this field that you and other researchers will have to face to continue to make progress? Yeah, I mean, certainly there are there remain technical challenges when it comes to uh, our our different you know systems, be they on the preclinical side or even the cl clinical side. And there are a lot of talented people in the field who are trying to address um, technical challenges with the technology. Um, so I can say you know that is something that we are working on. I think another thing, and this is not just necessarily exclusive to uh, focused ultrasound technology, but another thing in general is just, you know, continuing to advance our models, be they, you know, our model cell lines or our animal models to truly recapitulate the pathophysiology of different diseases in the human setting so that when we're refining and, and discovering at the bench side, we are doing things that can truly be translated to the clinic. I think just broadly speaking, that's something that I know my lab spends a lot of time thinking about, but certainly others do as well. And then the other thing too, I think is just adoption. Uh, I think that one of the beauties of being on 
platforms like this is, you know, maybe uh, we will reach people who had never heard of focused ultrasound technology and will now feel motivated to go learn more and um, may also land on something that might be useful for a family member. You know, I, I've definitely had encounters like that. And I think it's just so gratifying when, you know, we as people who are typically in the lab thinking about all these complex biological issues can take a moment just to reach out and help improve you know, scientific and, and medical literacy among the broader community. So I think one of the major challenges, and again, this is where the Fuss Foundation has an incredible role, is just promoting adoption of the technology and awareness. And this will only help advance, you know, the scientific causes as well. It's a very exciting field and a field that, as you've described, is taking large strides very quickly, which yes. is very exciting. I'd like to, as we wind down, focus a little bit about you. We've talked about your <laughs> success. As you look at your career as a young researcher, and if you look forward the next two, three decades, how do you see your research evolving and your career evolving in academia, in science? Yeah, so from the standpoint of research, I think in having launched my lab, I have been thinking a lot about the theme of precision medicine and more specifically precision immuno-oncology. So one of my major efforts now and going forward is to not only consider continue exploring focused ultrasound and immunotherapy paradigms, uh, and this is of course with an eye towards clinical translation, you know, the extra layer to that and the challenge, the next challenge we wanna tackle is how we can make these paradigms better tailored to the patient. So my dream personally is to be able to deploy focused ultrasound immunotherapy paradigms in a manner that first of all is entirely non-invasive, meaning from the point of treatment diagnosis to prognostication, to treatment itself, to follow-up surveillance. We wanna see a day where a patient does not have to interface with a scalpel or a catheter or deal with any of the off-target toxicities that are common to some of our existing standard of care therapies. And so the things that I didn't mention are that my lab is also dabbling in the spaces of quantitative imaging and imaging informatics, as well as liquid biopsy, which are other non-invasive and longitudinal metrics that we have at our disposal, uh, basically in order to round out this paradigm. And so we're thinking a lot about biomarker discovery as well. So, you know, my dream would be to really be able to deploy focused ultrasound in a way where, you know, we get all responders, right, and not just non-responder slash responder uh, stratifications, which is what we tend to see now when it comes to immunotherapy responses. I think that was sort of the, the answer to your question about where I see the research going. I think that it might sound pretty simplistic to say, you know, let's make this a precision medicine approach, but there's a lot of nuance to that and a lot of work that we still need to do to see that reality through for our patients. Um, the second piece of that, just from a career perspective, is, you know, being up, but having reached this point, I can say it was, as you can probably glean from my path, it was a dream of mine to end up, uh, you know, a, a faculty member, to, to become, you know, a card-carrying academician. So to have recently been able to achieve that for me means a lot because I reached a goal that I had and now getting to see the launch of my lab and, and you know, having that creative autonomy now to really go after these kinds of questions is already really gratifying. And I hope to just continue growing from here and again, paying forward 
I think especially the the kindness and the mentorship that I have received to date to the next generation of young scientists and students. And, you know, I, for lack of a better way to put it, I still have a lot of dreams and ambitions as far as, you know, ascending into greater platforms and greater opportunities for leadership. So my plan for my career is really just to keep setting the bar higher <laughs> to see where it takes me. That's quite exciting. You <laughs> mentioned the importance just then and earlier in our, our discussion about mentorship. What do you think we can do as the science community, as the medical community, to continue to encourage children like you were at 14 to go into this field? Yeah, I think some of it does come down to awareness. This is something that I've thought a lot about and, and been asked about on occasion just because I personally, I remember when I entered the lab setting and then tried to engage in my first efforts to facilitate that for other students, and this was through a medical science internship program that I directed in college, I came to realize something that I really hadn't appreciated before. And that was the fact that there are a lot of students out there who, again, just don't know what they don't know. And what this comes down to is, for instance, awareness of the fact that you can do research in a laboratory setting as early as middle school, high school. I mean, I've had both examples, honestly, in my time as a mentor. So what I'm trying to get at is, you know, we have, I think there are a lot of efforts across the STEM community to, you know, foster early engagement in students and, and to sort of promote the recruitment and retention of students in STEM. But a lot of the retention piece, I think, comes down to having the right mentors. I mean, mentorship is a huge, huge aspect of all of this. And the second piece, again, is, is what I talked about before, which is like when we have it in our power as mentors to educate students and present opportunities to them, I really think we should. And so a, a major passion of mine at, you know, back in the day when I learned that I could do research, I felt like I owe it to other students to let them know they can too. And I can say, at least from my anecdotal experience, that that enabled some of those students to then go on and stay in the research enterprise or to go to grad school. And it's these kind of grassroots efforts that I think, um, you know, with the right amount of quality over quantity and, uh, you know, with the right amount of individual attention can really start to help us make those big strides that we're going after. And we'll get back to that in, in a minute, Natasha. But... I think after hearing you over the last half hour, my audience will not be surprised to hear that you've won a number of awards and had a, a number <laughs> of recognitions. Most recently, you were named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, which is an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. I'm curious what your reaction to that news was and, and what was your reflection in terms of those who have helped you and brought you to this point of receiving this recognition? Yeah, the, the Forbes 30 under 30, I'm really not exaggerating when I say it's been a dream of mine for a long time. Uh, so, you know, it's, um, it's an amazing recognition. And I think the first thing that popped in my head is how many people I feel I need to thank <laughs> by virtue of having finally accomplished this big dream. But to first answer your question about my reaction. I, I just have to say that it was so funny when I found out the news, it came as a total shock. I, you know, um, I had no indication of, of where things were headed and, and how things were going to turn out. But I was met with an email while, you know, sitting, I happened to be working from home that day. And I was met with an email that I was first very confused by. I couldn't tell 
what it was about. And suddenly when I saw that it said congrats and forced their new under 30, I just threw my phone and I screamed and processed for about five minutes. And then I could not reach any of my loved ones. So <laughs> in the moment where I wanted to make phone calls and share the news and the excitement, it was so funny because I, I could not reach anyone. So I got a nice long period of getting to celebrate, you know, by myself. And then, of course, eventually the news made it to, you know, family and friends and colleagues. Um, but, you know, as far as that recognition goes, it's I think it's just such an honor to be in that list because the people that I have seen in the Forbes under 30 list, including people in my own cohort, I have really looked up to and admired as, you know, change makers and innovators and people who are really trying to push the boundaries. So to even be considered among that class of individuals to me just felt like a, a huge honor. And um, again, I think that a lot of it has been born out of, you know, the support that I've received over all these years, if you chalk this up to this last decade, let's say, of having started in a high school research lab and the first leap of faith and then the second and the third, uh, you know, the most recent leap of faith that led to, I would like to think in part to the Forbes under 30 recognition was my return to UVA. So I came back um, to the department after a pretty abbreviated postdoc under the auspices of the NIH Director's Early Independence Award, which gives junior scientists like myself a launching pad to basically start their careers early, as the name of the award suggests. So, you know, all of that taken together, I think, was a really validating and, and, and gratifying uh, vote of confidence as far as this path that I've recently embarked on back in, you know, in terms of being back at UVA. Certainly is very excited, uh, very exciting and very well deserved. Natasha, my final question to you is one we ask all of our guests and one that we've talked about. For those students or trainees who are interested in going into what you've gone into, whether that's a research career, a career in academia, a career in the sciences, for that 14-year-old who's spending after school in her own high school science lab and then a college science lab, what advice, speak to them, what advice do you have for them? Yeah. Um, my advice, I guess, I'm just going to say the first thing that pops in my head, and that is that you can't plan everything. So I think a lot of students at that age, if they're anything like me, they are thinking, you know, years ahead into what could be. And then, you know, I talk to a lot of students who are driven by a little bit of fear or anxiety around, you know, whether what they're doing is enough or what they should be doing. And I think if students can find a way to step outside of that and think about what they really enjoy and maybe relinquish some of those pressures that they place on themselves to do you know what they think they're supposed to do that is when some of the most rewarding moments of self-discovery can happen you know so for the student who is thinking about doing research and you know, doesn't know, has hesitancy or doesn't know where it's going to lead, my, my advice is just to do it, you know, be fearless, have courage. And, um, you know, and again, I say don't plan ahead because I certainly, if you'd ask 14 year old me or even 20 year old me for that matter, where I was going to be several years from now, I would never have imagined this. And I, I couldn't be more grateful for where I am, but I think it happened because Again, I just kept doing the things that I knew I loved, and I kept surrounding myself with people who I felt could lift me higher. 
And then beyond that, I think we all just have to trust the process a little bit. So maybe that was, you know, 10 pieces of advice folded into one. But, you know, hopefully there is someone who hears this and, and you know, decides to be proactive about their future or to really reflect on what they like. And, and I hope that that ultimately leads them to the path that's meant for them. Sure. And Natasha, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day. I think, like you said, there are a lot of words of wisdom that you've shared with our audience and with me. And it's been very interesting. So, Dr. Shabani, thanks for joining us on the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. It was really inspiring to speak with Dr. Shabani. I think you could hear in her voice just how passionate she is about what she does. And her drive to be successful, which started at such a young age, is very admirable. As we think about the future of medicine, curing cancer has to be one of, if not the, top priority. The work Dr. Shabani is doing with ultrasound may be a key to finally finding a cure. And I think that the rapid nature in which focused ultrasound is making its way from the lab to the patient is incredible. It's a true bench-to-bedside success story. I can't wait to see the progress that Dr. Shabani and her team continue to make in the coming years. When speaking about the future of her research with Natasha, I couldn't help but think back to another podcast episode I recently listened to. TC After Dark is the brainchild of TC Skornavaki. TC is the executive producer of the Michael Smirkanish program on Sirius XM Radio. Michael and TC are who I referenced at the beginning of my conversation with Natasha. It was Michael's program that I interned for starting at 14 years old. A few weeks ago, TC had her daughter Emma on her podcast in an episode they titled 10 for the 20s. In the episode, TC and Emma talk about 10 cultural trends to watch for in the coming decade. As I listened, I couldn't help but think about what the medical 10 for the 20s list would consist of. I think that after speaking with Dr. Michael Harrison about aerospace medicine a few weeks ago, and then Dr. Shea Bani this week, the rapid advancement of technology and its impact on medicine has to be at the top of that list. Think about what Mike said about ultrasound a few weeks ago. During COVID, he was carrying a portable ultrasound probe from patient to patient, gathering crucial information about their conditions. Natasha described how focused ultrasound is being used to make incredible leaps in the fight to cure cancer. Technology is changing the world of medicine each day, and Mike and Natasha are just two examples of individuals leading that charge. Who else do you think is on the cutting edge of technology and medicine? What else would make your medical 10 for the 20s list? Be sure to drop me a message on our Instagram page. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Take care.